You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Echoes from the Past, Pictures of the Future, Episode 12 with Daniel Pell. Good evening and welcome to our series, Echoes from the Past and Pictures of the Future. I'm excited to be able to come to our 12th, series, uh, 12th uh, presentation tonight entitled The Final Battle. Now I'm going to admit right up front here tonight that we have a lot to cover, uh, but it is going to be a fascinating journey. Uh, the truths that we're going to study tonight are truths that have really, for, for, for my own personal studies, have transformed my life. And uh, the teachings that we're going to look at come from the book of Revelation. Um, we're going to look at the 14th chapter of Revelation. And these, in Revelation 14, we find three very special messages that are going, even as I speak now, into all the world. And these are the final messages for this earth before Jesus comes the second time. They are fascinating messages. They are strong messages. And um, they are transformational messages. And we're going to study them tonight. Um, I titled this, this um, presentation, The Final Battle, as we are indeed living in this great, great controversy between uh, the forces of darkness and the forces of light. And we know that we are living in a world that is a result of a controversy that broke out in heaven. And that there is a being um, in, in, in Revelation, he is pictured as the dragon that is going out to deceive because he knows that he has a very short time. And yet God is also working in mighty ways to bring about a revival and a reformation um, in this world. And in Revelation chapter 14, we have three very special messages that picture, um, that picture a people that when these messages are accepted and applied in the life will be that generation that will stand through that last great time of trouble that is described in da the book of Daniel and Revelation and will be, and will be able and um, the will have the privilege to behold Jesus face to face. So I'm very excited to be able to uh, embark upon this journey in the book of Revelation together with you entitled The Final Battle. But before we get started, we're going to have a word of prayer, invite the Holy Spirit to guide us tonight. And so let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to open your word. We thank you for your grace, which is which, which makes it available for us, Lord, your word, and that your spirit gives us the understanding of your word, for we know that without you, uh, it's impossible for us to understand these things. But we thank you, Lord, that spiritual things are spiritually discerned and that you have given us um, your Holy Spirit as a, as a teacher, as a guide. Please be with us tonight, Lord, as we look at these incredible prophecies and as we look at the closing scenes of earth's history, Lord, May this not only be a presentation of knowledge, but may it also be a change in our lives, Lord, as we see the importance of belonging to you in this hour in which we live and in these days in which we live. Thank you, Father, for your goodness, and we pray now for your blessings, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we turn our attention to the book of Revelation, written by John on the island of Patmos. 
And we have already been um, journeying through the pages of the book of Revelation. And we turn our attention now to the 14th chapter. And in Revelation chapter 14, we find three angels that have three special messages for this world. Now, an angel in Scripture is a messenger. Um, we see how um, throughout Scripture, angels bore messages to this world. And in Revelation chapter 14, we have three of them depicted there with three specific messages for the very days in which we are living. Now, how can we know that these three messages found in Revelation 14 are specifically for our very day, for our very time in which we are living? Well, it's interesting to note that in Revelation 14, just after these three angels um, are, pic are, are pictured there with three messages, right after that we have a picture of the second coming also found in Revelation chapter 14. So John, he says, I saw one angel, and then this angel has a message, and he records that message. Then he sees a second angel, and he records the message of the second angel. Then he sees a third angel, and he records the message of the, thir of the third angel. And then the next thing that he beholds in verse 14, you can read it in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. This is a picture of Christ's second coming in his glory, in his greatness. And so these three final messages are really messages just before the coming of Jesus. So let us look at the first angel's message, which we find in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 and 7. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. So the first message is seen by John, it is heard by John, and he, and he, and he describes it as an angel, and the message of the angel is a very, is a very easy to understand message, and yet at the same time a very profound message. The message of the angel is that the gospel, and not just any gospel, but the everlasting gospel, is to be preached, and not just to one nation or one corner of the earth, but to all people, all tribes, all nations, all tongues, all people. And that, and that message of that gospel is a message to fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of his judgment has come. And then it turns our attention to the worship of the creator. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 24, which is uh, known as the uh, chapter in the gospels where Jesus talks about the signs that will precede his second coming. In that chapter where he talks about earthquakes and pestilence and famines and, and, and all these things that are going to happen more frequent and more intense as we draw closer to the end of time. In that same chapter he tells us the following in verse 14. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14. It says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. 
So Jesus says this gospel will be preached in all the world and then the end will come. And the first angel's message in Revelation chapter 14 is proclaiming the everlasting gospel unto all kindreds, nations, tongues, and people. Certainly that is then an end time message. And even as I speak now, the gospel indeed is being proclaimed in many, many nations where it has not been proclaimed for various reasons. But now the gospel is really penetrating all areas of the world as a fulfillment of prophecy, as a fulfillment of what will happen before Jesus comes again. Well, what is the gospel? Well, you know, we could spend a lot of time um, preaching on the gospel, teaching on the gospel, studying the gospel throughout scriptures. But there's really one verse that, that sums it up that we could call the, nutshell, the gospel in a nutshell. And that is when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, he said in John chapter 3 and verse 16, and of course many of you, if not all of you, um, have heard this verse or you, many of you know it by heart. Uh, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus takes our sin upon himself and he dies the death that we deserve so that we can receive the gift of eternal life that is his because he is eternal and so he gives to us eternal life when we put our faith and trust in him and our sins are laid on him. Now, this gospel is a gospel that will go into all the world before the end will come, according to both the words of Jesus and according to this prophecy found in Revelation chapter 14, the first angel's message. Now, many people say, well, the gospel began in the New Testament. Well, the gospel was, was there already before the New Testament was written. The gospel is really the promise of God to man, the promise that the Messiah would come, and that already was given at the moment that mankind sinned. When they sinned and God came into the garden, and already right there the promise was given for um, a Messiah to come, a, a, a one that would come, the promised seed that would crush the head of the serpent. The language there is, uh, is very symbolic, but it points forward to the coming Messiah, the promised one. So Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, introduces us first and foremost here to the everlasting gospel that will be preached in all the world. But that's not the only thing that, that we read about in this message. There's more in this message. Everything is founded upon the gospel. The gospel is like the solid foundation. And then there are messages that build upon that that are of great importance for us living in these uh, final days um, of Earth's history, this final time of Earth's history. Now, let us go back to this message for a moment. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. Now, that expression, fear God and give glory to Him, has oftentimes been misunderstood. Because it doesn't mean that we are to be afraid of God. To fear God means that we should give him reverence and honor in our life. Now, there's a Bible text that really explains this in a very significant way. If we go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, 
When Moses brought out the people of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt and he led them to Mount Sinai, as he came to Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given to him and to the people, there was this great manifestation of God on that mountain. The mountain was smoking and there was lightning and the voice of God was heard and the people were actually very afraid. And Moses addresses the people and he says to them in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 18 and 20, just after the Ten Commandments have been given, take notice of the words of Moses to the people. It says, now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they were trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. Now, what is Moses saying? Moses is saying to the people, do not fear, do not be afraid of God. And yet in the very same verse, in the very, the very next sentence, he says, but fear him, fear, that, that, that his fear may be before you. Now, what does that mean, that his fear may be before you, that you may give him honor and reference, that you may worship him, and yet that worship is not to be based on being afraid because God really wants to come close. He wants that intimate relationship with man, and yet we are to give him honor because he is a king of kings and lord of lords. He is the creator of heaven and earth. And so this type of fear will also, this, this healthy type of fear will also lead to an obedient life. Because right there on, on that mountain, there at Exodus, there in the, in the Exodus story on Mount Sinai, the people received the Ten Commandments of God. And those Ten Commandments were really something that man was to honor and, and reverence and understand that this was God's words to them for them to live a life that would be secured from sin, a life that would set them aside as a people and make them a special people that could shine out with that light to other nations around them. And so the, the, the fear God, the type of, of, of fear that we are to have is not to be afraid of God, but to give him honor and to give him glory and to worship him and to live obedient lives. And that we cannot do in our own strength, but empowered by God, he has promised that he will help us at, to conquer sin in our lives. And the new covenant that he wants to establish with us is that he wants to write his law in our hearts and in our minds. Listen to the, to the covenant that God wants to establish with each, with each one of us. And this is taken from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. The Bible says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, isn't that a powerful covenant that God wants to make with us? He wants to write his law in our hearts and in our minds. Not only did God write the commandments in stone, but the greater promise is that part of the covenant, and this is the new covenant, he wants to write his commandments in our hearts and in our minds. 
So it's not we that produce that obedience, but it's Christ that does it in us. And he wants to lead us into obedience so that we can be a people that can put his character on display, that can shine forth the glory of the gospel to those in darkness. And this is God's plan for each and every human being. From the very beginning, God wanted his image to be seen in man. God said, let us make man in our image. And yet that image has been marred by sin. And the plan of the gospel is really the plan of restoration. God wants to restore us and renew us. It's, he's like the potter and we are like the clay. And he takes that clay and he molds it and fashions it and makes it again into his image. And he wants to put his commandments inside of us, in our hearts, in our minds. In John chapter 14 and verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. The commandments are really like a mirror in many ways. You know, you look into the mirror and the mirror will reveal, um, will reveal you in many ways. If you have been working on your car or you've been working in the garden and the end of the day you walk inside and you look into your mirror, that will reveal maybe some of the dirt or some of the oil that is on your face. And you can really do two things. You can be, you know, upset and you can smash the mirror or you can actually wash your face. You can do away with that filth. Now, really what has happened in, 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 in Christianity at large in many ways is that we have looked into the mirror of the law and what we see is not really a pretty picture because the law reveals our sin, it reveals our shortcomings. And so what some Christians have done is like, well, let's do away with the law. Let's smash the law. Instead of doing away with the law, the law should lead us to Jesus Christ because the law does not in and of itself save us. It only reveals to us our sin, which should turn us to Christ, right? And then when we accept Christ, then that law, which was first a mirror revealing our sin, is now written in our hearts and in our minds. It becomes part of this new covenant relationship that God wants to establish with us. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 Paul said, by the law is the knowledge of sin. See, if you remove the law, you don't know what sin is. And if you don't have sin, you don't need a savior. And if you don't have a savior, well, you have no gospel. So it's really like a domino effect. If you remove the law of God, you're really removing the gospel. The law of God is there to point us to Jesus. The law of God is there to reveal our sins. And ultimately, in the new covenant relationship that God wants to establish with us, he wants to write his law in our hearts. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7 says, I would not have known sin except through the law. And so part of this end time message that we find in Revelation chapter 14, the first angel comes on the scene and he preaches the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says in that message, fear God and give glory to him. We accept the gospel and we accept Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection on our behalf. And then something starts happening in our lives. We start worshiping God. We give honor to God. Our lives change and empowered by his spirit, we live different lives. We become obedient to his commandments. Now, we fall and we stumble, certainly. And yet Jesus is there to lift us up each time and to empower us and motivate us and inspire us as we have our goal fixed on heaven and the finishing line that is right there promised to us. And so this message in Revelation chapter 14 is an inspiring mes message to come to God and allow him to do a work in us 
as we fear him and give glory to him. Now, the final part of the message said, of the first angel's message said, um, and worship him. Actually, before we go there, I'd like to, like to look at this sentence here. Um, after it says, fear God and give glory to him, it says, for the hour of his judgment has come. Now, have, those of you that have been following along in our studies in the book of Daniel, we have found out, based on prophecies in the book of Daniel, that we are living in the judgment hour. As a matter of fact, since, uh, when you look at these grand prophecies in the book of Daniel, uh, chapters 8 and 9, it reveals this 2,300-year prophecy, you will remember, which brought us all the way to the year 1844, where Jesus entered into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, and we have entered into this judgment hour. We are living in that period right now, what we also call the investigative judgment based on our studies in the book of Daniel. So we are indeed living in the fulfillment of this very message here in Revelation chapter 14. We are living in the judgment hour and how important it is in this judgment hour, in this judgment period, to fear God and give him glory to apply the gospel in our lives and to ask God to write his commandments in our hearts and in our minds. And then the last part of that first angel's message, it says, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Worship him. And why do we worship him? Because he is the creator. He has created heaven and earth and all things found therein. Now, there is a right way to worship and there's a false way to worship. You go all the way back to the beginning of creation and just after creation and just after the fall, you have that incredible story of Cain and Abel. You might remember the story. Cain, he brings his fruit as a sacrifice to God and God's, God, God cannot, uh, be, cannot accept that sacrifice because it is the own, his own works, the works of Cain. But Abel brings a sacrifice as sacrifice, a lamb, which of course involves blood. There's a life that has been taken, but this is the very type that pointed forward to Jesus being the lamb that would be slain for our sins. And so this is accepted in the sight of God. There's a true way to worship. There's a false way to worship. And so it is today as well. And what happened, of course, there um, at that scene is, and you might remember the story, that Cain ends up murdering his brother. And so the false worshiper persecutes the true worshiper. Now, that's something that will indeed repeat in the end of time according to Bible prophecy. And we're going to get a little bit into that um, in our presentation tonight as well. Now, what we see in the book of Revelation is in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, we have this scene of a beast coming up out of the sea. And we've already studied this uh, power that is revealed there in Revelation chapter 13 as the papacy, the um, papal church that is identified there in Bible prophecy. And we use a lot of identification marks to um, pinpoint this system that is revealed there in Revelation 13. As a matter of fact, there's a long line of reformers uh, and Bible students throughout the ages that have carefully studied the books of Daniel and Revelation and been able to pinpoint to this system, this corrupt apostate church as being the fulfillment of this power revealed in Revelation 13. In Revelation 14, we have a message that stands in, in stark 
contrast to Revelation 13. And so that's what we're looking at tonight, a message in stark contrast to this um, pious, um, great big system that has um, corrupted really the truth of God's word. And so that's what we're looking at here. And of course, we also found this power in Daniel chapter 7, which is a, the synonymous power as to Revelation chapter 13. According to Daniel chapter 7, and this is a little bit of review for those that have been following this series, in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25, it talked about this little horn power, which is really synonymous to the beast power in Revelation chapter 13, um, this antichrist power of scripture, and it gives us an uh, an uh, uh, characteristic or an identification mark of what this power would do. And this is going back here to Daniel 7 verse 25. The Bible says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. This power, this Antichrist power, which we have identified as the papacy, would intend to change times and law. Now, is there any commandment in the Ten Commandments that is specifically dealing with time? Interestingly enough, there is. There is a commandment that deals specifically with time, which we're going to look at in just a bit, which has really been under attack by Rome, and which really fits into this prophetic scenario of Revelation chapter 13 and 14. But before we go there, this verse here in Matthew chapter 5 tells us that Jesus himself said that the law would not be done away with, it would not be destroyed, but it would be fulfilled. And Jesus, of course, was the one that perfectly fulfilled the law of God. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. And these are the words of Jesus that he spoke from the, um, on the Sermon of the Mount. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled till all is fulfilled. And yet there is a power that is trying to change the very commandments of God. Now let us read this commandment before we look at this change that has been made in it. In Exodus chapter 20, where we find the Ten Commandments, verses 8 to 11 deals with what I would say, what I would call the forgotten commandment. A commandment that God has given amongst the other ten, but that has widely been overlooked and even blatantly uh, put aside by the Christian church at large today. Listen to the words here in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8 to 11. It says, remember the Sabbath day. And it's interesting that it begins with the word remember. Because if God says that we are to remember something, be sure that the devil will try for you to forget whatever God says, remember. Now, the commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Uh, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now the language there is very similar, if you take note, to the first angel's message. Because in the first angel's message, the angel said, fear God, give 
glory to him, for the hour of his uh, judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains therein. So the focus of the first angel's message is worshiping God because he made heaven and earth. The commandments on the Sabbath is reiterating the fact that God is the creator. In six days, he made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. Very familiar language. And therefore, he blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, some people say, well, you know, Sabbath commandment, that was for the Jews. Sabbath commandment, we, by the way, find all the way back in creation. In creation, we read how God created in six days, and then he set aside the seventh day and blessed it, sanctified it, made it holy for this continual memorial that he is God, the creator, and that he wants this special time with his people. Sabbath has been uh, a gift to man, a gift by God to man. Professor Thomas, he said the following, he said, man could not keep the original Sabbath and forget God. It was a continual reminder of God, the creator, and how man is like, you know, clay in the hands of the potter. Now, whenever we, when we look at our world today, our world is full of um, science, falsely called science, that you know, teaches that man is just an accident, that there's no transcendent meaning or value to life, which really in many ways destroys the picture that God has given to us in his word. We are valuable because God has not only created us, he's redeemed us, he has, he has paid the price for us. We are highly esteemed in the eyes of heaven, and yet evolution takes away all value from man. And the Sabbath is also there to reiterate the value that man has in the eyes of God. Because God says, not only do I create the world, you know, but I want an intimate relationship with those that I create. I'm not just going to step back like the worldview we have of deism, where God is somewhere you know, living upstairs and we're living downstairs, that he's separated from humanity. And, and many times the way that we live our Christian lives, it almost seems that we believe in deism because you know, we believe that God now and, now and then he pulls the strings and something happens in our life, but really he's not really involved. That's a false picture and it's not a biblical one. What God wants us to understand is that he's intimately involved in every area of our lives, that he loves us with such a great love that he even set aside one day in the week, every week, to spend special time with us. It's a day of friendship. It's a day of a relationship. It's a day in which we remember what God has done both in creation and in redemption. This is the Sabbath day that is given to man. No wonder the devil wants us to forget such a great blessing. No wonder that the devil is out to destroy this very relationship between man and God. Now, I was earlier referring to how the Sabbath is found in creation. Why don't we read it here in Genesis chapter 2? Right after the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, listen to how the story continues in chapter 2 in the first three verses. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished... And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. 
Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. God creates beautifully. He creates all. And then on the sixth day he has the crownship of his, of his creation which is man. And then right after that he steps back. And it's almost like an artist that is just stepping back after he has painted this beautiful scenario. And he looks at his creative, creative work and he says it is finished. It's a perfect work. Nothing can be added to it. And then he blesses the seventh day, and that is the memorial of creation. It's a carved out time. It's, it's like God has carved out 24 hours every week in time that he says, this is between me and man. This is between us. And this is a memorial of creation. This is the gift of the Sabbath, the gift that we find also in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath commandment. Now, According to Bible prophecy, there is a power at work here on earth and has been at work here on earth to cause people to forget the very commandment that begins with the word remember. This antichrist power that we have already exposed in various presentations here is the very power that it is predicted of in Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 that he would intend to change times and laws. And there's really only one law in God's commandments that specifically deals with time and that is the Sabbath commandment. And truly the Sabbath commandment has been under attack. Now, how, how did God, um, or we should ask the question, which day is the Sabbath day and how has this power attempted to change that day that God has set aside? Well, the Bible first and foremost reveals which day is the Sabbath day or the seventh day Sabbath because in the commandments, in creation, it talks about the seventh day. Well, let's take a look at Luke chapter 23 and a story that reveals to us which day is the Sabbath day. Luke chapter 23, verse 54 and 56, talks about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. And I want you to take notice of the succession of days that it's talking about here. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 54. That day was the preparation, and this is talking about the day that Christ was crucified. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. And the women uh, who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. So the women that were there at the crucifixion, they were there when Jesus died, and now they're following, and they're seeing how he is laid in the tomb. Now, you've got to remember that a biblical day, when you look at a biblical day from creation, a day actually begins at sunset. And so now the sun has already set. And so this would be the first day of the week. The first day of the week has already begun in a biblical setting. Now, later on, things changed. And, you know, we, we now go more by a, um, uh, this 24-hour setting of where at 12 o'clock, you know, then we move into the next day, 12 o'clock midnight or one minute past 12, one second past 12, then we're into the new day. Biblically, a day began with sunset. So you have sunset, the evening and the morning was the first day. That's what it says in creation account in Genesis chapter 1. The evening and the morning were the second day. And this is how the Jews observed days for, for, for centuries. And so for them, the sixth day was the Friday for us, what we know as Friday. And it was the day that they called the preparation day because they prepared for the Sabbath because the Sabbath was drawing nigh and the Sabbath would come when the sun would set on Friday evening. 
So here it talks about Jesus was crucified. You might remember that when, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the Jews really wanted to make sure that his body was taken down because the Sabbath was coming. Now, you know, it's kind of like a little bit of a weird scenario there, not understanding, you know, that here is the Messiah, the fulfillment of everything. And yet for them, it was very important still, uh, despite of it all, that Sabbath was going to be capped. And so they wanted his body down from the grave. They wanted it in the tomb before the Sabbath. And so this is what they're talking about. Sabbath is drawing nigh. Then Jesus is laid in the tomb. Now, of course, the Jews had missed out on what true Sabbath was all about. Because it's more than just the commandment. The commandment is important, certainly, but there's also a deep spiritual meaning of entering into the full rest of God. And that's not what they had experienced. They were legalistically outward keeping the Sabbath, but had not transformed their lives. But this story does reveal to us that the Sabbath is the preparation day, um, which the Jews, by the way, still keep as Friday, the sixth day of the week, leading into the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, which starts on the sunset of the sixth day. Now the next, and then it continues here in this text, and it says, then they returned and prepared spices and fragment oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And then the next verse, or I think I'll have it up in just a moment. So the order of events so far we see is Friday is the preparation day. Then we have Saturday, known as, the, of course, the Sabbath, and then we have Sunday, the first day of the week. So I, don't, I, I must have skipped that verse there. But the very next verse in that chapter, it talks about how they went to the tomb on Sunday, the first day of the week. So, uh, or it, it doesn't mention, of course, Sunday, but it says the first day of the week. Now, in our modern uh, vocabulary and in our modern uh, knowledge of these days, it's interesting to note that Saturday, in more than 100 languages, is actually the word for Sabbath. So you have more than a hundred languages in the world where you ask a person, you know, what is the seventh day? And they will, they will, the name that we use, Saturday, is actually meaning Sabbath. Like, you know, you have Spanish, it's I think Sabado, which means Sabbath. So you have uh, more than a hundred languages which really testify to the fact that the seventh day, Sabbath day, is Saturday. And we look at the Jews as a nation, Friday was the, always their preparation day, the sixth day of the week, followed by the Sabbath, as we see in the account of the crucifixion. Sunday being the first day of the week. Of course, this is very obvious as we also um, uh, look at Easter. Easter, we have Good Friday, upon which Christ was crucified, and then we have Easter Sunday, the resurrection day. Very clear. Um, also dictionary, uh, seventh day is Saturday, the seventh day of the week. Now, there are calendars, and I don't know how it is here in Canada. I haven't really checked, but uh, over where I live in Europe, there are calendars that will tell you that the seventh day of the week is Sunday. But that's, not, that's only really a change that is not that, not that very long ago. Actually, I believe it was in the 70s that... Um, they changed the calendar from the seventh day being Saturday to the seventh day being Sunday. Now, that's significant also in regards to these prophecies that we're looking at. But what was going on here, uh, when we go back to the time that Christianity merged with paganism, when we spoke about this earlier in the days of Constantine as he tried to merge his kingdom together, a lot of paganistic rites were coming into Christianity. And church history... Um, 
This is a quote taken from this book on church history. It says, Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire and took the place of paganism. Christianity as it existed in the Dark Ages might be termed baptized paganism. And then it goes on here, and this is an interesting quote here. Constantine, in the year 321 AD, he um, passed a degree, and listen to this decree that he passed. He says, on the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in cities rest and let all the workshops be closed. So what is going on in the days of Constantine? He is merging his empire together, many Christians, many pagans. He becomes a Christian himself, which was really a political move. And as he's bringing these things together to accommodate for the pagans, he makes now the worship. He moves it from being the seventh day upon which the Jews were worshiping. And he's really trying to distance himself from the Jewish sect at that time. And now he institutes the day of worship as being on Sunday, which was really very pleasing for the pagans, by the way, because they were worshiping the sun for centuries. And now they could worship on sun day. Very fascinating history. Constantine was really the originator of it, but the Church of Rome was really the one that enforced it. And exactly what we see in the prophecy, the Antichrist would do what? It would try to, or would attempt, says, to change times and laws. This is taken from Bible Encyclopedia, uh, page 561. It says, Sabbath, a Hebrew word signifying rest, Sunday was a name given by the heathens to the first day of the week because it was the day on which they worshipped the sun. And uh, again, Daniel 7.25 is such a significant prophecy um, in these regards. He shall intend to change times and laws. Well, why don't we go to the very sources of um, Roman Catholicism and see what they say themselves about this change? Because, you know, I can come with, with, with arguments that I believe are, 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 are um, uh, speaking and are uh, worth considering, but let's hear it from their own sources, because if Bible prophecy predicts that there, was, there is indeed a system of truth that we can clearly identify as the papacy, and the Bible says that they would intend to change times and laws, and we see the change from Sabbath to Sunday, how does this play out? Um, how has this played out in history, and what does Catholicism say about this themselves? Well, let's take a look here. Um, this is take, these are quotes that are taken from Catholic sources, and this one says, the Pope has power to change times, to abrogate laws, and to dispense with all things, even the precepts of Christ. See, this church is not very, um, I mean, they're, they're very bold as to uh, declare the uh, power that the church holds here on earth. They have power to change times. These are their own words. Um, Cardinal James Gibbons, he wrote a book um, entitled The Faith of Our Fathers. And listen to what he writes in this book on page 561. He says, you may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. Now, I completely agree with what he's writing there. I listen to how he continues. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. Wow, that's, that's very true. He's stating a true fact there. There is indeed, from Genesis to Revelation, no uh, significant or no teaching altogether that really enforced the religious observance of Sunday. Well, why does he make that statement? Um, he makes that statement because the church... <laughs> 
according to Rome, has the authority to change it. So they don't have to really find their way in Scripture to make it work. They can just say, well, the church has the authority to change it. That's, that's the church. The church is above the Bible. Um, listen to this one, Catholic Record, uh, September 1, 1923. Sunday is our mark of authority, and here it comes. The church is above the Bible. And this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. So they say, look, look, we as a church, we're above the Bible, and so we bring in the tradition of Sunday keeping, and all the world wonders after Rome, and, um, you know, Rome is smiling, because yes, they have that authority. They believe that they have that authority given by God, they say. Um, if you want to be a Bible-believing Christian, if you want to follow the Bible and the Bible only, then you must say to this, well, no, I believe that the, church, that the Bible is above the church. Um, now, if you say that you agree that Rome has that authority, then I would say, well, keep on worshiping on Sunday. And, and if you believe that the Church of Rome has that authority, that's fine. But for my side, I say I disagree with that statement because I believe that the Bible should be above the church. I believe that the Bible should be the last word. Amen? And, 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 and then things start changing. Um, this is another interesting one. The convert's catechism of Catholic doctrine, and a question is asked in the convert's catechism, which day is the Sabbath day? And the answer there is given, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Well, thank you. That's very plain language, isn't it? The next question, though, why do we observe Sunday instead of Sabbath? Because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. You see, it's no, it's no hidden language here. Rome is, is very blatant, is very bold about the fact that they have changed it. And the world is wondering after Rome. As prophecy said, the world is wondering after the beast. And yet, it is time for God's people to stand up with the light of truth and the torch of truth of God's word and say no. Because according to Bible prophecy, this power has been predicted that they would try, attempt to change times and laws. And yet, I decide to stand upon the word of God. I believe that the word of God is to dictate our conscience. I believe the word of God is to give direction to the church and not the church give direction to God's word. See, that's a very different, uh, different story. The Catholic World, March 1994, says the sun was a foremost god with heathendom. There is in truth something royal, kingly about the sun, making it a fit emblem of Jesus, the son of righteousness. Hence the church in these countries would seem to have said, keep that old pagan name, it shall remain consecrated and sanctified. So they wanted to merge the two together. Um, paganism and Christianity, and the result was really an amalgamation of the two. And what we see in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Greek Orthodox Church and many of these churches and, and, and even a lot of Protestant churches today that are turning back to Rome, we are seeing the traditions of paganism clearly on display. And one of them, one of the most boldest changes that has been made is in God's very law where the fourth commandment has been changed and the Sabbath has become the day of the memorial of the resurrection, they say. Well, there's no, no, no such thing in Scripture that um, authorizes that change. But Rome says, well, we did it. We did it. And it's our decision um, what, we, what we decide to worship and who we decide to follow. 
Um, oh, I didn't read the whole quote here. It says in the end here, and thus the pagan Sunday dedicated to Balder became the Christian Sunday sacred to Jesus. So you see how that, uh, uh, first they were worshiping their heathen gods, and now that it becomes all Christianized. It's like um, in the garb of Christianity. God's law is truly being trampled upon in our world. And the first angel's message is a clear call back to obedience. It says, worship God who made heaven and earth. Fear God and give him glory. At such a time as this, we need many that will stand up and say, yes, Lord, write your commandments in my heart. Revelation 22 verse 14 says, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. My friends, it's more than just a day. It really has to do with who we are loyal to. Who do we want to follow? You know, and, and if God says, and if God sets aside the seventh day, and man says, well, we make it the first day of the week. You know, we need to step back and say, who am I going to follow? Who am I going to be loyal to? It's more than just the issue of a day. It's the issue of the heart. And we can decide to belong to Jesus Christ and his law will be written in our hearts. Now, the first angel's message we've looked at here, I want to look at particularly also the third angel's message tonight. And, um, but let us read first the... Um, second angel's message and we're going to deal with this message more in detail tomorrow night but I do want to read it here uh, shortly um, it's basically just one verse let me see if I have it here on the screen um, that is the right verse but it's not the right reference that should be verse 8 Revelation 14 and verse 8 it says and another angel followed saying Babylon is fallen is fallen that great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That's the second angel's message. The first angel's message comes with a clear call to of the everlasting gospel. It says we're living in the judgment hour. It says worship God and fear him. Um, and then the second angel comes on the uh, comes on the scene and says Babylon is fallen. Where the first angel is a call to worship, the second angel is a warning what not to worship. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now, who is that, who is that Babylon that has fallen? Then it talks about she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Well, you know, you, you trace the name Babylon, you can trace it all the way back to Genesis where you might remember the story where shortly after the flood, the nations came together and they built the Tower of Babel. That's where Babylon started. But Babylon, you can trace all the way through the, through the story of Scripture. And then in the book of Revelation, the name Babylon is employed to describe this false city system of worship which is characterized by a harlot woman and this is all found in Revelation chapter 17. Now for those of you that were here during our last presentation you will remember that we looked at God's true church in Revelation 12 which is also represented by a woman and so you have two women in, in, in Revelation. You have one that is the true bride of Christ, the true people of God and then you have one that is the corrupted church or the false church and that is the one in Revelation 17. Now tomorrow in depth we are going to study that woman in Revelation 17 and so we'll look at what Babylon, spiritual Babylon represents. So hold on to that one and we'll come back to that in our next presentation. She is called Mystery Babylon the Great. We'll find out who that is tomorrow. But let us look at the third angel's message here in Revelation 14 which we find from verse 9 to 12. Verse 9 to 12. It says, Then a third angel followed them saying, 
with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I would go so far to say that I don't believe that there is in any other place in Scripture, a stronger message than this one. This is a message that is given just before the second coming of Jesus Christ. The very next verse, verses verse 13 and 14, deal with that coming of Christ and the final events there. And so you step one, you take one step back and you're right there in the third angel's message. A very, very strong message of God to prepare the world for the final events just before he appears in great glorious King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's almost like a message when I think about, you know, a little child that is running on a busy road and the parent sees it. And instead of the parent saying, hey, please come back, you know, the parent will shout out, come back and grab that child as, as soon as they can to pull them from the road because they know that that child is in great danger. It's almost like God the Father here crying out to humanity with such a strong message because he knows that false worship has become so prominent in the end of time that such a language must be used to arouse the senses of humanity as we come to the close of all things. Well, what is this message all about? It talks about the beast. It talks about the mark of the beast. Now, this message is really present truth. It's the truth for this hour. Just like Noah preached a message for his days. Noah could have preached about a lot of topics, but if he forgot to mention that a flood was coming, his message really didn't mean much, did it? He could have talked about, you know, all good things, but it had to include the flood that was coming upon the earth. That was the present truth of those days. And then you have, you know, uh, Jeremiah. He could have prophesied a lot of things and spoken about a lot of things, but if he didn't talk about the coming of the king of the north and the invasion that was going to happen to Israel in the days in which he was living, his prophetic ministry would have not had the power and the force that it had. And it would have not reached the potential and it would not have even reached the purpose that God had in it if he had remained silent upon that um, important topic in his days. And so it was, was, of course, with Jesus. Jesus had a very pointed message for the very time in which he came. And that was that people had to believe in him. And that message, of course, transcends all times. It becomes present truth for all ages. But we see how prophets have had present truth in the times in which they are living. And so it is also with this prophetic message of revelation. No wonder that the devil is trying Christians to, to make, making Christians believe and, and trying to, to point to the very fact that revelation cannot be understood. And that's just too difficult. And that we, it's shrouded in mystery. Yes, the devil wants us to close that book and not study it because it's present truth. And present truth shows us the times in which we're living and the things that are just before us. So Revelation chapter 14 in the third angel's message says, Do not, it is a warning against the mark of the beast. Now, we have already identified the beast. The beast that we find there in Revelation chapter 13 that comes up on the scene there. Why don't we just read the description again? If you turn to Revelation 13 verse 1. 
It says, I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. See, when you look at the amalgamation of the beasts that are mentioned here, it really brings our mind back to Daniel 7, where you have those beasts uh, also uh, mentioned resembling the kingdoms um, that would lead up to the rise of the Antichrist, or the rise of papal Rome. We have pagan Rome in its first form, papal Rome in its second phase. So right here in Revelation chapter 13, we have the, this papal system again on display in Revelation chapter 13. We have already looked at many of these identification marks, but I want to walk through Revelation 13 and see how this message of Revelation 13 plays into the third angel's message of Revelation chapter 14. Now, take notice of verse 5, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 5. The Bible says, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Now, this time prophecy of 42 months, if you take the day-year principle of Bible prophecy, which we have applied uh, many times now as we've been studying Daniel and Revelation, we have a time period of 1260 years leading us from 538 to 1798. This was the period in which the papacy ruled during the Dark Ages. Now, as you come to the end of that time period... We know that the, mortal, the, the, the prophecy tells us that um, one of the heads of this beast would be mortally wounded, which was really um, a fulfillment of what happened in 1798 when the Pope was taken captive and the, and the uh, unity between church and state was abolished. The very next thing that it says in Revelation chapter 13, when you go to verse 10, it tells us, that the very one that would be the persecuting power would now be persecuted himself. And it says the following, He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So the very power of the papacy that for years and years and years had been persecuting would now go into captivity Itself, And that happened in the year 1798 when this beast of Revelation chapter 13 received a deadly wound. Received a deadly wound when Berchet, under the command of Napoleon, marched into the city of Rome and abolished the papacy and the unity between church and state in the year 1798. And so that time prophecy came to an end. But the prophecy is not yet over because Revelation chapter 13 continues and it brings us to this incredible scene. Take notice of verse 11. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. So another beast comes on the scene after the first beast goes into captivity. I want you to take notice of very important characteristics here, identification marks of what this power is. It comes not out of the sea as many of the other beasts came up out of the sea, but it comes up out of the what? Out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Now, I don't, know, I don't know how this beast exactly looked like, and I don't know how the other beast exactly looked like. These are just, you know, depictions that have been put together to give you a little bit of an idea. But you can, you can hopefully imagine what it must have looked like. A lamb-like beast that comes up out of the earth, has two horns, um, like a lamb, and then it says that, you know, 
um, he spoke like a dragon. I don't know if you've ever met a lamb that speaks like a dragon. You know, you see a lamb and you want to pat it and then raw. <laughs> that, that must be a very strange sight. But look at what Bible prophecy, look at the identification marks because they're absolutely phenomenal. The first beast came up out of the sea, according to Bible prophecy. The second beast comes up out of the earth. Now, already there, that's a major difference. Sea, in Bible prophecy, according to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15, represents multitudes of people. So all the nations, or all the beasts that come up out of sea, they come up in populated areas. We've seen that in Daniel chapter 7, when we have you know, all the beasts in Daniel chapter 7 that we study, they all came up out of the sea. They all came in populated areas. So it is also here with the papacy in Revelation chapter 13, the first beast. The second beast comes up out of the earth, so we are looking at a scarcely populated area because that's the, that's the um, uh, opposite of sea. Now, there are more identification marks. This power comes on the scene when the first beast goes into captivity. Because verse 11 talks about this lamb-like beast coming up out of the earth. Verse 10 talks about the first beast going into captivity. So when Rome went into captivity, that was at the end of the 1260 prophecy, which ended in which year again? 1798. So we're looking here at a power that comes on the scene around 1798 and that rises in a scarcely populated area. Now, there are more characteristics because the Bible says a lamb-like beast. Now, if you look up the word lamb in the book of Revelation, it appears quite a number of times. And actually, in all other places except this place, it talks about Christ. Christ is the lamb. Christ is the lamb. But here, it talks about a beast or it talks about a prophetic beast. And it uses the language lamb-like. In other words, this nation that is coming on the scene is a Christian nation, a Christian nation, at least in its origin. And yet then it speaks like a dragon. So it's a Christian nation, and yet it, there's a change going on. All right? There's a change that comes in. But looking at all these identification marks, a Christian nation rising sometime around 1798 in a scarcely or unpopulated area, there's really only one nation that fits those identification marks, and that's the United States of America. You know, the United States of America rose up around that time. It is a Christian nation, and another identification mark is that the first beast had ten horns, and those horns had crowns, and the papacy was ruling over the ten kings of Europe in the old world. As to the new beast has two horns, but no crowns, so this is a nation without a king. Again, fitting perfectly to the United States of America. Listen to how the United States of America came up. Uh, it talks here about the new world compared with the old. Um, G.A. Townsend, he says, The mystery of her coming forth from vacancy, like a silent seed, we grew into an empire. You know, and you look at the two principles of, um, in many ways, of the United States of America. Uh, you have republicanism and Protestantism. And look at the definition of these two. Republicanism, the words of Abraham Lincoln, government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And if we want to turn what real Protestantism is about, this I took from the book Great Controversy. It says, Protestantism sets the power of conscience above the magistrate and the authority of the word of God above the visible church. 
You see, what was going on is those that founded the United States, many of them, were tired of the oppression of Rome in the old world. And so when they made that big, those big journeys across the ocean and they came to the United States of America to found a new nation, they said, hey, let's make one thing very certain here. And that is that the authority of the word of God is above the church. Remember that that was the whole problem with papal oppression is that they said that the church is above the Bible. And so these are really the foundations upon which the United States was, uh, was, was founded on uh, in, its, in its beginning years and in its uh, development as a nation. You might remember or you might have read in history about the stories of the Puritans that made those journeys with, uh, with those ships across the Atlantic. In those days, there was, well, those were not really safe journeys, and yet they, there was something that drove them to it, and that was one thing that was freedom. They wanted to escape the oppression of pa the papacy and the oppression of, of the old world in Europe to start a new life. Um, according to the dictates of their conscience in uh, the United States of America. And that's why when you look at the Constitution and you look at the Bill of Rights, it's very clearly stated. Uh, Amendment 1 of the United States Constitution says, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's plain language, isn't it? Now, and, uh, and this is the Declaration of Independence. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These were clear principles that were laid at the foundation of this new nation that is prophesied here in Revelation chapter 13. And yet, according to the Bible, the lamb-like beast would not remain lamb-like. It says in Revelation chapter 13 verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and what spoke like a dragon. What does it mean to speak like a dragon? Well, the next verse adds a little bit detail and understanding as to what was going to happen to the development of this nation. Verse 12 says, and he, talking about the lamb-like beast, exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Remember the first beast identified as the papacy there, went into captivity in 1798, but we have already learned that that beast, that wound would be healed and it would come again on scene as a world-dominant power in the end of time. And according to scripture, the second beast, which we identify here as the United States of America, will enforce the first beast and cause the world to worship the first beast. Now, let us go on in Revelation 13 because there's a prophecy that really connects us to Revelation chapter 14 in the third angel's message. We're looking here at a message that says, do not receive the mark of the beast, a warning against the mark of the beast. We found out what the beast represents, the papacy. We found out that the beast went into captivity in 1798, that its deadly wound is, has been healed and is being healed even as I speak, and that there will be a nation, the United States, along with many other nations, that are going to enforce 
this power. Now take notice, um, we looked at this earlier, how the uh, deadly wound is indeed uh, being healed. Um, already we can trace this back to the time when Mussolini, the, the pact between Mussolini and Gasparri, um, the historic Roman pact. And I think I shared this article with you earlier too, San Francisco Chronicle, February 11, 1929. It says the Roman question tonight was a thing of the past and the Vatican was at peace with Italy in affixing the autographs to the memorial document, and here they even use the language, healing the wound, the wound, extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. And that was really the beginning uh, of this healing process, which has really been a process, even as we see today, how this power is increasing, not only in its um, church authority, but also in relig uh, religious matters, but also in political matters, as we see ambassadors of nations that are sent to the Vatican. There's no other church on the face of this planet that receives ambassadors from countries. This is really something that should uh, cause us to think a little deeper. This church has gone beyond being a church. It is a state and it is a state that is recognized by the world. It is the richest, one of the richest organizations on the planet, on the face of this planet. And it is exercising its authority more and more as we're seeing this new world empire coming on the scene that is being undergirded by some very powerful nations in this world. And one of them being the United States of America, according to Bible prophecy. Uh, listen to this quote. I found this very interesting. Taken by, from um, Thomas uh, Milady. He says, I believe that the United States, as the world's only superpower, and the Holy See, that's the Vatican, as the only worldwide moral political so sovereignty, have significant roles to play in the future. Their actions will impact the lives of people in all parts of the globe. And of course, this is a unity that we find in Bible prophecy and a unity that we're even seeing before our very eyes. You might remember when Pope John Paul II, when he died, I don't know how many of you saw footage of the funeral, but you might remember seeing um, the President of the United States and former Presidents of the United States kneeling in front of the tomb of the Pope. Just going so, it just shows us, uh, it's really a reality check in many ways, um, if the United States can still be considered a Protestant nation. Because Protestantism comes from the word to protest, and it originated in a protest against the corruption and false teachings of Rome. Now, people say, well, Rome has changed. Well, you ask Rome themselves, and they say, we have not changed. Uh, Rome has, has stuck to the same teachings that it even had during the Dark Ages. Now, it might not be persecuting right now because of a lack of opportunity, but, and, and, and you know, we don't know. Of course, there are many, many honest people in the uh, part of this church. And, you know, I, I told you earlier my testimony or part of my testimony that, you know, my, my, my parents come from a Roman Catholic background and I'm not at all trying here to attack any individual people. There are loving people in all denominations, but we see clearly from Bible prophecy um, points to a, a system that has corrupted the truth of God. And that's what we're trying to identify here. And when a Protestant nation or Protestant churches start, you know, apologizing for the Reformation, something's deeply wrong. Because the Reformation was a time in which the truth of God was brought to the forefront. It was actually that which, 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 um, 
propelled and put in action uh, the age of the Enlightenment and the age that we came out of superstition and darkness in which the world had suffered under for many, many years of papal oppression. And yet what we're seeing today is that uh, nations are going back um, to Rome. And it's like the saying goes, all roads indeed are leading to Rome. But we need a new reformation in which the truth of God is upheld and in which we stand upon the word of God and not upon the opinions and traditions of man. Take notice how the prophecy continues in Revelation 13 and verse 15. It says, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So as we come closer to the end of time, you will remember from the book of Daniel, it talked about a time of trouble that had never been. And the uh, papacy will come to such a world dominance and world uh, power that it will cause those that will not worship it, its power, to actually be killed. It's a death decree. Now, in the past, there have been death decrees that God has overturned and that he has protected his people through. Uh, you might remember the story of uh, Daniel chapter 3 where the three friends are caused by Nebuchadnezzar to worship this, this golden image that he has set up and they say no and they're cast into a fiery furnace and Jesus appears in their very midst. So um, these, these Bible texts and these prophecies uh, should not cause us to fear, but rather to cause us to turn to God because God can overthrow um, all um, darts of the evil one that are you know, shot towards us. God is capable of overturning things and vindicating his people. He's done it over and over and over again in the past, and we can have that assurance with us tonight as well. Now, um, when we look at this image of the beast, it's interesting the word image. Uh, when you think of the word image, it's, you look in the mirror and you see your image. The image is like a reflection um, of yourself. Um, that's why God, in the beginning, he made man in his image because he wanted to see himself reflected in man. Uh, sometimes we say, you know, when you see a father and a child and the child looks very much like their father, you say he's a split image. It's like an image, but it's not the real, it's really an image. When you have a little photo that you show me of your daughter or your son, it's an image of your daughter and son. It's not your son or daughter in and of itself. That's what it's, an image is. Now, the prophecy says that there will be made an image of the beast. Now, an image is some picture of what has been. Now, when you look at what has been in the past and what the beast has done in the past, that kind of picture is going to be a similar picture as what we're going to behold in the future. It's like what we've been doing in the series all along. Echoes from the past, pictures of the future. Now, what is that scenario of the past that is the image that is going to help us to understand what's going to happen in the near future? That is the unity between church and state, because that's really what it all comes down to. A church can say what it wants to say, and you can decide to obey or not. It doesn't matter if the state is not enforcing what the church says. And so it was in the days of papal oppression in the old world, in Europe, that Constantine enthroned the papacy. He gave power to the papacy. The kings of Europe, Clovis, king of the Franks, and many other kings in Europe, they gave their authority and power to the papacy. And so the papacy as a church now has stately authority, and everyone that disagrees with them is, he's done. It's a done deal. Now, in the world in which we live now, 
in this nation, Canada, and where I'm from, in, 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 in Norway, praise God, the church does not have that stately authority. That's why the United States was a lamb-like beast because it was founded upon the Christian principle of the, um, of the separation between church and state. And that's a wonderful principle to found a, na to to found a nation on. Uh, a nation should not be founded on, on anything else. Um, Actually, in that sense, you know, it's far ahead of many nations even in Europe. And I, even where I'm from, in Norway, uh, though the church is not persecuting, uh, actually the church and state are still somewhat united. Um, and and, and, and that's, that's just the way things were done in Europe all the way back in, in the Dark Ages. And, and in, in many ways, it really hasn't, they haven't changed that system. Um, but the United States have a, has a very different government. Now, if in the past this is the image what caused persecution, the unity of church and state, what do you think it's going to be in the future when the papacy comes to its full recognition in the world? It's again going to be a unity of church and state. According to the Bible in Revelation chapter 13, the United States of America, which is prophesied there, is going to be the nation that is, was going to be one of the most prominent ones in bringing together this unity again. Well, you might say, well, the United States, isn't that the nation that is mostly, uh, you know, uh, promoting the separation of church and state? Yes, it has been, and to some extent it is still, and yet things are changing rapidly. Things are changing rapidly, even before our very eyes. We talked about that story already. The real question that it comes down to is, who will you worship? Who will you worship? Let's look, take a, a look at a couple of questions regarding this prophecy that we've looked at so far. Um, how will this great deception take place? That's the question. How will it take place? In verse 13 to 17, the Bible says, He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed." He calls us all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. hope you took, took note of the uh, first verses there. What was it that caused the world to worship this beast? It was signs. He would do signs in front of the people. Now, you know... In a world that is basically illiterate when it comes to the Bible, a sign means a lot. You know, you, you perform a sign, and you see it even in many Christian churches today. Uh, you have great, great popular uh, preachers that are doing signs and miracles and causing thousands and thousands and thousands to follow them, and yet they teach contrary to Scripture. And so what is happening is that, you know, uh, signs in and of themselves are not evidence of conversion. Signs in and of themselves are not evidence that something is truth. Uh, the devil can do signs and miracles as well. And he has in the past. And he is doing even today. And we must be very aware that we don't make signs a test of something be, uh, being authentic or not. The only test of something being authentic is the word of God. The Word of God is the source upon which we discern, is this right or is this wrong? I test it by going to Scripture to see if something is right 
or something is wrong. I can't use signs because, you know, signs will, they will, they will be manifest. And according to Bible prophecy, signs will be manifest in the end of time, significant signs that will cause many to be deceived. Don't put your confidence in signs. Put your confidence in Jesus Christ. Put your confidence in his word and test the spirit um, of, of, of these signs. Now, how do we recognize the distinction between those that worship the beast and those that worship Jesus Christ? How do we recognize the distinction? Well, clearly, the distinction is the matter of, of, of the mark of the beast. Uh, we already read this uh, verse here. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. So we have the mark of the beast, which is a distinction in the end of days as to those that are worshiping the beast. And then also the Bible talks about the seal of God, which is a distinction of those that worship God. Now, this mark and this seal is not um, some kind of a tattoo that some have believed or some kind of barcode or some kind of thing that you can see. Um, it is very important to know that in the book of Revelation, we are dealing with symbolic language. Um, when the beast comes up out of the sea, we're not looking at a literal beast, we're looking at a what? Symbolic beast, symbol of a power. Um, and so also the mark of the beast is not a literal mark, and there have been many, many, many speculations regarding the mark of the beast. Oh, I can't, if I started going in that, I could just spend the rest of the evening talking about all these speculations that have been regarding the mark of the beast. Some kind of tattoo, some kind of barcode, some kind of this. Some people didn't want to buy certain products and, you know, until they eventually saw that it didn't do anything. And so they started buying it. And there's all these speculations. The book of Revelation is symbolic. And so this seal or mark is not something that you can see literally on the hand or in the mind. It's talking here about decisions that you make, decisions regarding who you will worship. And really when it talks about uh, in the mind and on the, on, on the forehead, the Bible even talks about uh, God at one point, he says to the people in Exodus, and I think I have the verse coming a little later, he says, you know, bind my laws upon your forehead and upon your hands. What does he mean by saying that? That they should literally bind around uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments uh, listed there? Actually, that's what some of the Pharisees did. And so they went around with these texts hanging on their foreheads and on their hands. And Jesus was like, that's not what I mean. It's to be in your heart, in your mind, it's to be in your actions. You know, and that's what, what, that's what really it is about in the end of time. Where is our allegiance? Where is our loyalty? Where, to what do we worship? What do we follow? So what is the seal of God? Because really, in order to identify the mark of the beast, we first need to identify the seal of God. Because what I like to do here is the principle of contrast. You identify the truth, and then you can easily know the counterfeit, Right? It's like some uh, people that are really trained in um, identifying false money. Um, they actually spend more time studying the true money. Did you know that? And by knowing what is true, they identify the false. Instead of using all their time in identifying, in looking at what is false, because they'll always come up with something new, they spend their time in exactly knowing the true so that then they know they can, they can identify the false whenever it comes. So instead of looking first at the mark of the beast, I want to look at what is the seal of God. And then we just apply the principle of contrast. And we will know what the mark of the beast is. So what is the seal of God? Well, the Bible tells us. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 16. It says, seal the law among my disciples. You see, the new covenant is God writing his law in our hearts and in our minds. 
Seal the law among my disciples. You see, those that worship God will be sealed by him because they are obedient to him. They follow him. They belong to him. Listen to what it says. I think I have another text here. Yes, Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. The Bible says, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. You see, the commandments, the Ten Commandments are a seal. And specifically in the Ten Commandments, we have a commandment that really identifies who we serve. Think about it, because many of the commandments that we have... Um, a a non-believer in God could also follow many of those commandments. I mean, don't kill, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Uh, I mean, there are many good people in this world that don't believe in God at all that can keep many of the commandments. Yes or no? Yes. But there's one commandment that specifically identifies who we worship. And that's the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment. It says, moreover, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me. When we set aside the seventh day in the week to worship God, we are showing that we belong to him. He is the one that sanctifies us. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 20 says, Hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. You will know that I am your Lord. It's a sign that God has given in a very special way. When you think about a seal, it really contains three things. It contains a name, a title, and a territory. When you look at the seal of the the President of the United States, for example, that seal will include his name, his title, and his territory. Now take notice how the Sabbath commandment includes each of these three uh, vital um, components of a seal. It says in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So we have the name, the Lord your God. We have his title mentioned, the creator. And we have his territory mentioned, heaven and earth. In a very special way, the Sabbath commandment shows who we worship and our relationship with him and his plan for us. So if the seal of God is his commandments, if the seal of God is the obedience to God rooted and fasted in the minds and hearts of his followers in the end of time, then the mark of the beast applying the principle of contrast would be the opposite or it would be the counterfeit commandments, counterfeit to God's commandments. Now, the beast, identified as the papacy, has he attempted to change God's seal, to change God's commandments? Absolutely. So what is the mark of the beast? It is actually the mark of Rome. What marks Rome, what, what is it that marks Rome as being a power that has opposed the principles of God? Well, in many ways they've opposed the principles of God, but if there's any principle that is above any other principle, it is the fact that they changed, attempted to change God's law. God's holy ten commandments, Rome says, we change it. We change it. They They um, removed the second commandment and they divided the tenth commandment and they adjusted the fourth commandment. So they still have ten commandments. The second commandment, by the way, prohibiting idol worship is completely removed in the catechism. The tenth commandment, in order to still have ten commandments, is divided into two. And the fourth commandment, they have changed the day of worship to Sunday. So an alteration in the eternal government law of God. 
Is there any greater um, boldness in the world than an earthly power changing the authority of the God of the universe? The mark of the beast is the mark that puts Rome in a place of an apostate power against God's law. Listen to what they say. Or again, they shall intend to change times of law. But listen to what they say. Um, Catholic record. They say Sunday is our mark of authority. It is what marks our authority. The church is above the Bible and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. See, it's very simple. If the seal of God is his commandments, then Rome is saying, hey, wait, 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 wait. We have our own commandments. We have our own commandments. A changed, alterated version of God's commandments. The Sabbath is transferred from the seventh day of the week till the first day of the week. C.F. Thomas in 1895 says, of course the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act, and the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. These are Rome's own words. And so we see the seal of God revealed there in the commandments of God, and we have the mark of the beast, the changed commandments, the worldly tradi or the, the traditions of man, the traditions of the church, exalted above the teachings of Scripture. Now you might say, well, does that mean that those that worship on Sunday have the mark of the beast? Well, that's not what I'm saying. Um, what I'm saying here is that at the end of time, there's going to be a significant picture of prophecy that is going to unfold before us and that is that a stately powers are going to start giving their giving their authority to Rome and Rome is going to dictate what people are going to do and Rome is going to call for a Sunday worship and when that becomes an issue on a state level on a level in which now the church has stately authority then you and I will have to make a decision will we worship on God's holy day or will we worship on the day that the papacy has now changed, or already has changed, but now enforces. Then the, st the mark of the beast will become a real issue. But of course now, God is calling us already to obedience to the light that we receive. And God wants us already now to experience the blessing of the Sabbath. Because, you know, it's not, an, it's not a, some, a duty. It's, it's a blessing. It's a given blessing that the world has forgotten. Remember the Sabbath day. God wants us to remember Him as a creator and to enter into relationship with Him, not only in the keeping of a 24-hour period once a week, but entering into His rest because the Sabbath is really a symbol of the rest of God in which we can enter and experience the power of the gospel of God. First, uh, we want to look at another question here. When will the mark of the beast be enforced? Well, I kind of answered that already. I'm running ahead of myself. When church and state finally unite. When the church and state come together. And according to Bible prophecy, again, the United States is going to be a nation that will spearhead this. And other nations will follow in this new world order as the Roman papacy is exalted to a level in which it will dictate the way and the time people are to worship, then it will really become um, an issue of the, the mark of the beast and the seal of God. Um, this is an interesting uh, statement from Jerry Falwell, which is very prominent in um, the ecumenical uh, movement of churches. And maybe you've heard about the Christian Coalition, which is really a, a movement of many churches that are coming together and saying, hey, let's, let's, not, let's not you know, argue. Let's just come together on a common platform 
Sadly enough, that common platform involves coming under Rome and, um, and it coming under uh, an altered uh, commandments, uh, commandments uh, and not the Ten Commandments of, of Scripture. Uh, listen to what he says. He says, all Americans would do well to petition the president and the Congress to make a federal law and amendment to the Constitution, if need be, to establish the Sabbath as a national day of rest. Now, when he says Sabbath, he's talking about the Sunday, Sunday Sabbath. Um, of course, such a Constitution would violate the principles of religious freedom, would they not? I mean, what we believe in, we believe in religious freedom. Didn't Jesus say when they came to him and they, they talked about you know, him paying taxes to Caesar? He says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. Jesus clearly separates church and state. Whenever you put church and state together, history tells us it's bad news. It's bad news. And, and history has enough examples of the oppression and tyranny of what results in church and state being united. It is very frustrating for me when I see religious leaders that want this merge. I think, where did they learn their history? I mean, going back and looking at history, it is clear that this is nothing but trouble. And Christ wants us to experience his word, but it should never be dictated by any other power. It should come from the heart. Amen? You cannot dictate things that regard spirituality. I mean, God wants us to worship from the heart. He wants our allegiance. He wants our loyalty. And no one can force that. Amen? No one can force that. It must come from the heart. And he wants us to experience his seal in these last days. What does it mean? And this is the last question. What does it mean for the mark of the beast to be given in the forehead or in the hand? What does that mean? Well, I already referred to this verse, but I want to read it here. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 to 8. It says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. In other words, let these words be in your heart, in your mind, in your actions. This was the very principles that God wanted to see established in them. It goes on to say, Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. God's plan was that they would be established in them. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt." Now, the mark of the beast being a contrast to the seal of God is, of course, not the words of God in the heart and in the, in, in, in the mind and in the actions, but it's the words of the beast, the words of the papacy in the mind, in the actions, and in the thoughts. So it's a contrast, again, to God's truth. We always have God's truth on display in Scripture and in prophecy, and then we have the counterfeit also mentioned right there. And we need to study carefully the Word of God so that we can distinguish between these two. These two. Uh, another uh, interesting um, uh, picture of prophecy is that the mark of the beast is given either in the forehead or in the hand, according to prophecy. The seal of God is only given in the forehead. And I find that an interesting uh, detail because you can follow the papacy in the last days when it dictates 
how to worship and when to worship, you can either follow it because you really believe it with your heart and with your mind, or you can follow it because it's just convenient, the action. Like, I don't want to get in trouble, I'll do it. And so you can get the mark of the beast on your forehead or in your hand. It can be um, a decision or it can be merely out of fear or just because it's the convenient thing to do. When it comes to the seal of God, the seal of God is not given in the hand, it's only given in the forehead. God does not want us to do anything out of fear or convenience. Amen? God wants our hearts. He wants our minds. He wants to write his commandments in our hearts and minds so that we belong to him completely. And so I want to close with this verse, which is the new covenant, the covenant that God wants to establish with each one of us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. I will remember no more. When we confess our sins to Jesus Christ, he takes those sins and he will remember them no more. What a promise. And then he will take his commandments and write them in our hearts, write them in our minds. And he wants to seal you in these closing times of earth's history. When all these things unfold that we have spoken about tonight, God wants to seal you so that you belong to him and that you can be part of that number that will look up and behold him coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. How many of you want to be in that number? Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for being with us tonight. We thank you for speaking to our hearts through these prophecies and revelation. And Lord, we see that we're living indeed in solemn times and the events of prophecy are really unfolding before our very eyes. And we sense our need of drawing near to you. We sense our need of being more and more committed to you, Lord, and we pray that you will allow to us to fix our eyes on you and that you will be faithful in fulfilling your promises, Lord, in behalf of us, that you will fill our hearts and minds with your law, with your commandments, that we may follow in your ways and that we may receive the great blessing out of keeping your Sabbath holy, the day that you have ordained, the day that you have set aside. Thank you, Father, for the sacrifice that you have wrought on Calvary, Thank you that through your son and his death and resurrection, all this is possible. Thank you for the three angels' message that we've been able to look at tonight, the message of the everlasting gospel, the message to fear you, Lord, and to worship you and not to receive the mark of the beast. Lord, this is our longing. This is our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.